Does your child suffer from migraines? Seeing them deal with the pain and symptoms, how it can interrupt their school and activities can be heart-wrenching. That's why Biohaven is conducting a new clinical trial to learn how a medicine that's already helping adults with migraine might help your child too. If your child is between the ages of 12 and 17 and has at least a six-month history of migraine, they may qualify. To find out more, visit childmigraine.com. Gorgeous gaming, stunning streams, unbelievable bandwidth. It's another Lifestyles of Gagillionaires. Meet the AT&T Fiber customers winning at life with hyper gig speeds. Meet Gagillionaire Terry. While his love of streaming horror movies has him constantly on the edge of his seat, his internet bill won't give him a scare. Oh, don't go in there. I'm telling you. Because since Terry upgraded to AT&T Fiber with hyper gig speeds, he doesn't worry about data caps or equipment fees. Come on, man. The door's open for a reason. And best yet, he also doesn't stress about a price increase at 12 months. Because with the amazing Gagillionaire lifestyle comes an exquisite sense of tranquility. <laughs> Most of the time. Live like a Gagillionaire. Get straightforward pricing with AT&T Fiber. Internet that upgrades everything. No data caps, no equipment fees, and no price increase at 12 months. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash for details. Hey everyone, welcome to Millennial Mental Health Channel, where a psychiatrist and a therapist discuss mental health. Each episode will look at a different topic, things like anxiety, depression, and personality disorders. We'll share our thoughts and experiences on the topic, show people that they should not feel ashamed to have mental health problems, and encourage them to speak up when they need help. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoy. Justin and I get it. As mental health professionals, we understand the importance of having a self-care routine, but we aren't even that great at sticking to one. Life can get in the way, whether it's business at work or things popping up in our personal lives. Sticking to a routine is tough. One of the best ways of reaching goals is to have a supportive friend trying to meet similar goals and staying accountable to each other. Sometimes it's hard to find that partner. Friends and family might go a little too easy on us or just the opposite. We take their tough love too personally. That is where Supporty comes in. The app connects you to a partner to help you reach your goals through the convenience of your cell phone. Supporty finds you an accountability partner for a week at a time, and it's a whole system to help you get the encouragement you need to stick to your goals. There's no more swiping through profiles or awkward opening lines. We're looking at you, Tinder. Supporty <laughs> handles that for you so you can get the support simply and quickly from someone who cares. I know that when I have a friend or a furry friend to exercise with, I'm more likely to stick to my goals and really push myself. Same goes for trying to maintain healthy lifestyle changes. The cool thing about working with a partner is that you get to feel good twice when you achieve your own goals and when you help someone else achieve theirs too. So follow the link in our show notes or on our social media pages to get started today with your free two-week trial. Supporty, the accountability app. Hello. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Millennial Mental Health Channel. Uh, I got stuck and didn't know if I wanted to do like the Adele song, like uh, It's Me or the who's, who sings the other one, Justin? I think the, it's uh, Lionel Richie. Lionel Hello, Richie. Is it me you're yeah. looking for? <laughs> I feel like I should know that. That's disrespectful. I need to know better. <laughs> I appreciated it. I liked it. <laughs> anyway, 
Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Episode 35, I think we have a really interesting topic in line for all of you. Uh, I'm excited to get into it. I'm probably going to feel personally attacked throughout the whole episode. That's totally fine. Uh, It's important to talk about. So, uh, Justin, (laughs) he's here with us, as always, my good friend. How are you? I'm doing well, man. It's good to see you. We've had so many. We've had like three straight guest episodes. So it's Mm -hmm. really good to be back in the saddle again with my old compadre. (laughs) And uh, and we're going to have some fun. We're going to we're going to talk about uh, Internet addiction today. Mm, The interwebs. The Mm -hmm. W. What is it? What is W? World Wide Web? Right. Yes. Yes. You don't even you don't even need to type that in anymore. Right. You can just like go to. Facebook.com or like <laughs> how the world has changed. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, well, before we get into it, uh, you guys know we like to do shout outs. Uh, so our first shout out is for National Women's History Month. Um, that is just important to shout out. Shout out to all the important women in our lives. Shout out to National History Women's History Month. Also, shout out to National Social Workers Month. Whew. Justin and I have a lot of social worker friends, uh, either coworkers, uh, Friends that are in school. I know people who are in school to get their social work degree. I know people who freshly graduated. I worked with a bunch of social workers. Shout out to all of y'all. Yeah. Yeah. We love social workers. I actually just had a social worker reach out to us recently on Instagram and just like asked a bunch of questions. And like, it's just so cool working with people who want to go into that line of work. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, social workers probably do the most good in this world of any profession I can possibly think of. So if you're thinking about going into social work, please do. It's an awesome thing. And we love you. We respect mm-hmm. you a ton. Yeah. Um also wanted to give a shout out to Dr. Kojo Sarfo, our guest on our last episode. He did a fantastic job. Shout out to Party of Two podcast. Shout out to Mental Health Funnies. We've had a lot of really good guests on this show. We've been very lucky. And we're going to have some more guests coming up in the future. So if you guys want to check out some of those, we've got some... Uh, we got a sleep psychologist coming up, so I'm actually super excited to pick her brain uh, about some of that stuff. So we got some good stuff uh, in the works. Spoiler alert. That's what we got coming next. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yes. So as I alluded to earlier, the topic for today is internet addiction disorder. Why did we want to do this episode? I was actually having a conversation with my family over the weekend, and we were talking about just how it seems like everyone is becoming more and more addicted to their phones. Um, And they were like, hey, Justin, you should do an episode on that. It's actually, they don't sound like that. I'm sorry. I wasn't. (laughs) wasn't trying to mock anyone there. Um, but I was like, you're absolutely right. I should do an episode on that. And, uh, and so I did a little bit of digging, a little bit of research, uh, and realized that there is not that much information out there. So we wanted to mm-hmm. sh- try and share the information that is out there and maybe give some tips and tricks for uh, what you guys can do to try and combat phone addiction, internet addiction, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So... We'll start off with some story time. And since I've been jabbering so much, do you want to go first, Eddie, or you want me to take the reins? <laughs> I, I can jump into a quick story. Um, I think my favorite stories are the generalized ones. Uh, one of the things that I noticed a lot uh, in my last job specifically, because I, I worked way more with, you know, my case was like 30, 40 teenagers at a time. And one of the things that stuck out to me in relation to internet addiction and like gaming addiction and and all of that wrapped into one was I remember specifically a um, a mom calling for information about services and she'd called and that day I was on crisis duty so I was just kind of any phone call that comes in gets sent straight to me so I answer it and she basically tells me the story of how her 
son won't stop playing video games and he just won't like and I, I think at the time it was Fortnite. I mean Fortnite's still pretty popular, but he was just on the Fortnite all the time. Anytime she tried to get him to do anything, he wouldn't listen. Uh anytime she threatened to take it away, he would just freak the F out. He would not be able to um to li- he would just he'd go into full temper tantrum mode. Uh and I think what sticks out the most with that story is just how much like playing Fortnite was was a big deal in his life, just how much of a role it played in his life. Like for him, like he was, according to her, he was glued to the TV at all hours. Once school was done straight to the room, straight to the, the Xbox or the PS4, or the PC, just turning it on and just playing game Fortnite until it was time to time to go to sleep, just playing games. So it's time to go to sleep. And it's just crazy how much that, that is, it's, it, it's like uh, it, it happens a lot. I mean, that's not the only kid that I heard that from. If I remember correctly, I saw like uh, on Facebook, sometimes when you like watch a video, it'll like go straight into another video and it'll mm-hmm. show you like, you know, something semi related. And there was this video about a kid who was like on Dr. Phil, who I don't even think he's a licensed psychologist anymore. I think he just got like his doctorate. Anyway, he's like not <laughs> real. Um but like he he was the kid was on the Dr. Phil show for like the same thing for like gaming addiction and for like having very similar traits. So that is my story just on how much it has become more and more prevalent, like this gaming and, and Internet addiction among like t- teens and kids. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's something that is common in adults, too, especially as our generation gets older and we're actually becoming adults, which is blowing my mind a little bit. Um, a lot of us are having video game and internet addiction issues as well. Um, for my story in story time, I had a patient at the residential center. So these are typically uh, like a PRTF, which is a psychiatric residential treatment facility. Um, people usually spend like a couple of months in places like this where they work on, they get like therapy every day or every week. They see the psychiatrist once a week. It's like a really high level of care. Um, I had one patient who was going through a lot, you know, like suicide, legal issues, lots of depression, lots of anxiety, uh, not doing well in school. Um, and then was admitted to the unit. And the first couple of days were super rough. Like the first five days, like really anxious, really irritable, really moody. But then after that five day process, things started to get a lot better. And she really started to make a lot of progress, you know, was, was less moody, was getting along with people better, um, less depression, less anxiety. Um, and so after a couple months, uh, this, this person ended up discharging, but then went right back to her old life and right back to her old habits. Um, and one of the things that she had told me she did was, I mean, she started using her phone a lot uh, and was staying up on the phone all night, watching videos, talking to friends. She wasn't getting any sleep. And lo and behold, not too long after that, depression, anxiety, suicidality, all those things started to come back into play. Now, obviously... Lots of different factors in that case. It's not just we can say like it was the phone that did her in, um, but it was lots of different things. But I, th- I think definitely we see that a lot where kids almost go through like a little bit of a withdrawal uh, when they they can't use their phones anymore. And then after that, like that five day period, things get a lot better and they're actually able to start really working on things. Um, so that's, you know, that's the end of story time, you know, Uh 
Let's talk about, let's give you some stats and facts here. So internet addiction, (laughs) stats and facts, Uh, internet addiction. So the internet was only really invented in 1991. I love that clip. Uh, I think it's of Katie Couric. And she's asking that reporter, like, can you explain the internet to me? Like, what is the internet? It's so weird because it's so ubiquitous now. But I mean, it's relatively a new thing. It's only about 30 years old. Smartphones, I found out in doing my research for the show, were invented in 1992, surprisingly enough. I can't even imagine how big that smartphone was, <laughs> but only really became popular in the mid-2000s. Mm. Uh, I'm just trying to think. I think my first phone that had internet, I didn't have until college. Yeah, me too, so, until I was about 20, uh, sophomore yeah. in college. And that's just when it went all downhill. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so internet addiction uh, is known by a few names. The first is internet addiction disorder, so IAD. Uh, it's also known as problematic internet use or pathological internet use. Yeah. The interesting thing about all of these names and all of these terms is that there's still no DSM-5. So I know we've mentioned this a couple of times on the show. This is our our psych Bible. Every diagnosis we make is based on the criteria in this book, in this guide. There's nothing. There's nothing about this in the DSM. Uh, And I think the most recent DSM came out in about 2013. 2013. Yeah. (laughs) See, we know our stuff here on Millennial Mental Health Channel. Um, so, I mean, that was, you know, eight years ago now, uh, but there was just nothing in there yet. And in terms of internet addiction, um, there's not really anything in the DSM or billing codes for it. There was a gaming disorder, uh, billing code that came into effect, uh, in terms of the ICD 10 in 2019, which allowed people to bill for it and treat it and track it. Cause once you have billing codes, then all of that gets plugged into the computer. We can see how many people have been diagnosed. We see how many people, uh, are getting treated, but we don't have anything like that for internet, uh, addiction disorder yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, internet use disorders is quickly becoming more recognized as an issue. Um, I think the more um, that we keep progressing, the more time passes by it, it. It's definitely being seen as an issue. And I think it's it's it might only get worse unless we start to maybe make some changes for it. But I think um, just the amount of people now in 2021 that have a smartphone in their pocket compared to uh, 2011 when I first got a smartphone. I mean, I I think the the number has grown exponentially. I have no article to to back that up, but I'm going to just make that assumption and and think that it's correct because that's just, (laughs) that's just what I've seen personally. Absolutely. Well, I think that's actually my second absolutely of the podcast. I'm going to try and cut those back here. Personal apology here. (laughs) Of course. Um, So the the thing that scares me the most is that we're not really studying this or tracking this or or keeping tabs on it very well. When I was doing my research for this episode, um, I found like a study out of China in 2018 that showed about 26.5% of adolescents met criteria for an internet addiction. But I couldn't find really anything in terms of the United States numbers. I mean, I, I dug for a while and it, it, it's, it's surprising and a little shocking that we're not even tracking this stuff. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing I've learned about the United States in the last year is that we are lacking um, <laughs> just in general. Uh, we don't have great numbers on this, like Justin just said. No one's really studying the prevalence of this. Uh, and in order to be able to track it and study it and try to treat it, we need the billing codes to be able to do all of that. Uh, just 
numbers wise, if you look at average screen time for teens, it's about seven hours and 22 minutes a day. Uh, and for eight to 12 year olds, they get about four hours and 44 minutes. Uh, and on that topic, I saw a meme, this is kind of messed up, but I saw a meme <laughs> where it was like a picture of someone just kind of like relaxing, hanging out. So it's like me just relaxing on a Sunday, uh, minding my own business. And then like the next like panel of the meme is like someone kicking in the door and it's like my iPhone telling me like what my screen report is for the week. <laughs> cause sometimes those numbers come in you're just like, Oh, I'm just going to swipe up on that real quick. Cause I'm not trying to look at it. Yeah. It's scary. Sometimes you're like, Ooh, up 80%. Oh, <laughs> what happened? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So some of the symptoms, and, and you know, we're, we're kind of mixing terms here and mixing diagnoses a little bit because there isn't really a ton of, of diagnoses to latch on to, but one of the things we can talk about is internet gaming disorder. Uh, so according to the American Psychiatric Association, um, the symptoms of, uh, of gaming, internet gaming disorder are preoccupation with the internet, withdrawal when taken away, so that can be irritability, anxiety, sadness tolerance to gaming so you may only play for an hour a day and then before you know it, you're playing for two and then before you know it, you're playing all weekend and you're not getting any sleep and i remember when mm-hmm. i was a kid i played a lot of halo and there was one time where um i was playing halo 2 and i looked at my clock and it was like five or six in the morning and i was like i have got to go to bed and like i remember sitting in my bed watching the sunrise and being like i can't keep doing this anymore that was kind of the tolerance to internet gaming. Um, another symptom is inability to reduce time spent gaming. So hard to cut back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you listen to, if you've listened to any of our episodes related to substance use before this, you'll kind of see there's a lot of similarities between substance use and this like internet gaming uh, disorder. So another symptom is giving up other activities to game uh, gets in the way of like responsibilities at home, at work, that kind of thing. Uh, you continue to use despite issues because of gaming. Again, you, you know that you've missed work three days in a row because you're, you're kind of stuck gaming, but you keep doing it, even though you know you're probably about to lose your job or there's going to be some type of consequences. Uh, another symptom is deceiving family members about the time spent on games, probably from embarrassment or just not really um, wanting to share that part of your life. Um, another symptom is using games to relieve difficult emotions like guilt or hopelessness. So again, just using that as your coping skill uh, when really if, if if you've learned anything from when we talk about substances, it's not really even a coping skill. It's really just pushing it back until uh, it's delaying the the feeling of the feeling. So uh, there's that for, for, for the gaming and the internet use. And then another final um, symptom is jeopardizing a job for gaming. Kind of like I mentioned earlier. I mean, these are, these are all symptoms that have to cause impairment that have to um, impair your daily functioning to, to kind of be considered a disorder. Yeah. And then we also looked at uh, com, psy.com, uh, that actually listed some physical symptoms of internet addiction. And it can give you like muscle aches, carpal tunnel syndrome, headaches, insomnia, neck pain, and dry eye. And I think we take as many opportunities on this show as we can to talk about eye stuff because both of our significant <laughs> others are eye doctors, uh, they're optometrists. So one interesting thing about screens is that when you're staring at a screen, you tend to blink less. You're so focused, you, your, your blink rate goes down. 
And what that actually does when you're not blinking, some of your glands in your eyes that create lubricating fluid or your meibomian glands, they can start to back up and get gunked up. And over time, if they don't ever get released, they can start to atrophy. So your natural lubrication in your eyes those glands can start to dry up and, and die, essentially. So it can lead to chronic dry eye issues. So it's, I think ours is the first generation that really grew up with screens. So I'm really interested to see in the future how many of us have chronic dry eye issues because of the constant screen use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our significant others are definitely going to always have patience to look at because of this. Um, <laughs> another thing that I think, I, I if, if I'm botching this, I am so sorry uh, to our significant others and any of our other friends who are optometrists. But I think uh, one way to help is that if for every 20 minutes that you're staring at a screen, you take a break, look away from the screen, try to look at something, I think 20 feet in front of you, focus on that and blink 20 times. And that helps with uh, the eye strain. And I'm sure what we've already talked about with like the chronic dry eye and things like that. So if I mess that up, I am very sorry. Sorry, <laughs> well, that's like the 2020 rule, right? Is that what they call yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I did remember it correctly. Here we go. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Ed and I know like a disproportionate amount of optometrists. It seems like <laughs> half the people in our lives are eye doctors. It's, yes. it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> uh, what is it like picking up through osmosis or something? Or am I making that up too? I think that's a thing. <laughs> That's a thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we learn through them, but not actually by yeah. yeah that's fair. That's fair. Damn, there it is. <laughs> uh, therapy wise, what what do we have treatment wise for something like internet addiction or gaming addiction? Uh, there's things like CBT. We talk about that all the time. It's the bread and butter. It's day one. Uh, Evidence-based practices, CBT. There's also DBT. Again, that's like day two uh, for evidence-based practices. Like those are the big ones. And I think DBT even is, you know, comes from CBT because CBT kind of started a lot of this. Uh, There's things like group therapy. I think group therapy more now than ever mostly because of my job and how much group therapy I do can be so beneficial because it helps people who feel like they are alone, feel like they have nobody else to talk to with these kinds of things. They're in a group of people who meet a certain criteria, who meet a certain uh, level of impairment, who all share something that they can relate to and kind of talk with each other about. So uh, the other thing is it's important to know is that more and more addiction centers have popped up for things like this. Um, And while this ultimately is a good thing, it's important to know that if you're looking into it, you got to make sure it's evidence based. You got to make sure it's something that is going to be effective and not just something that's taking your money. Uh, And if you're interested in a treatment center, uh, make sure to ask what kind of specific therapies they're using and look up if they've been shown to work. That's ways to, to know that you're going to the right place. Yeah. In doing my research for this episode, I found a couple of instances where these type of treatment centers had like, and, and even it was like research studies, they would actually shock people who would like, were like, play some video games, everything will be fine. And then before they know it, just they'd get zapped to try and trick them or, or, or zap their, their minds, shock their minds out of wanting to play that game. But for obvious reasons, this isn't really done that much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and currently, I mean, there's, there's not really any specific treatments yet. None have been FDA approved. But I think over time, as we continue to, to move uh, in this direction, hopefully with uh, more studies here in the United States, we can start to try and better track this and better treat this. 
Oh, and it's been uh, it's uh, been a while here. It's I been about to. <laughs> I feel it coming, babe. Nerd alert! So, what's actually going on in the brain with internet addiction and gaming addiction? These kinds of things. So, uh, our phones are specifically designed by people, uh, and psychologists actually contribute a lot to this as well uh, to be addicting to to keep us hooked to keep us lifting up that phone i think you know eddie and i have talked about uh, the social dilemma that documentary in the past it does a good job of of explaining exactly how they do that but every time we get a, a notification a like we see a funny cat video our brain releases a little bit of dopamine that feel good chemical in our brain uh, and this is lighting up what we call the reward pathway which is also essentially the addiction pathway in the brain now, this pathway used to be a pretty good thing. For example, if prehistoric humans came across some good berries that didn't cause life-threatening dysentery or diarrhea, your reward pathway would like light up. It'd be like, your brain would say like, okay, this was good. This gave us a lot of energy. We're going to make you feel good uh, by releasing dopamine so that you come back and do this again in the future. This will help you survive. So our brains are pretty much prehistoric supercomputers or old supercomputers and they're not made for this modern world and computers can be hacked um, so tech companies have used psychological tricks to figure out ways to hack this reward process and get you to spend as much time as possible on their apps on their devices on the things that make them money so Similar to like what we talked about with the addiction episode, uh, the same exact thing is happening. Your brain is releasing dopamine and it gets hacked. It gets tricked into thinking that this is the only thing that's going to make you feel happy. This is the mm -hmm. only thing that's going to make you feel good. And that's a bad thing. So why is it a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> Great segue, Ed. <laughs> it's like we planned it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we're essentially giving up the vast majority. We're giving the vast majority of young people in this country a pathway or a gateway to an addiction from an early age. Uh, the thing we know about addiction is that it tends to be there tends to be a lot of com comorbidities with, comorbidities with it. Uh, I actually just did a training earlier today. I was telling Justin about it specifically related related to eating disorders, um, but it talked about you know the percentages of people who have an eating disorder uh, have some other type of um, have a comorbidity and that, and that tends to happen a lot, um, with other mental health disorders. So people with addictions are more likely to develop things like depression and anxiety. Yeah. And yeah, we always like to talk about the specific celebrities, uh, on this show that have struggled or, or talked about certain mental health issues. It's actually kind of hard to find <laughs> like everything else with this topic. It's hard to find information on it, but there have been a few celebrities who have, uh, who have come out and, and talked about like digital detoxing for the sake of their mental health. Um, and so one of them is the great country artist, Mr. Kenneth Chesney, uh, uh, he said that he felt like he could never relax because of the constant notifications from his phone. Mm -hmm. We also have Mr. Steven Spielberg leaving us with a quote of, of knowledge dropping. Uh, it goes like this. Technology can be your best friend and technology can also be the biggest party pooper of our lives. Uh, it interrupts our own story, interrupts our ability to have a thought or a daydream, to imagine something wonderful because we're too busy bridging the walk from the cafeteria back to the office on the cell phone. Uh, someone else who's come out and talked about it is Ed Sheeran. Uh, in 2015, he took a hiatus from social media. Uh, something that I should 
probably do, but I, I struggle with that. Um, and his quote follows as I find myself seeing the world through a screen and not my eyes. I really liked these quotes. I liked the Spielberg one because, I mean, he's absolutely right. It just seems like so much of our world is go, 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 phone, 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 work, 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 sleep, sleep, sleep. It, it, there's never really any time for a break. And I yeah. think, you know, I, I think there's something important about those times where your brain's not doing anything. And how many times have you been in a social situation where you're standing there, you're kind of looking around and you think, I got to check my phone. I got to check my phone. And I think that's part of an addiction. Um, And it's pretty classic addiction where we just constantly have this feeling that we have to be checking our phone. We're going to miss something if we don't have it. Um, And then the other celebrity who's come out and talked about phones and social media, things like that. You know, we've talked about her on on the show in the past, Miss Selena Gomez. Um, she actually, in the past, took like a ninety day technology detox and and talked about this in interviews. Um, she uh, she's been dedicated to trying to limit phone use because she didn't feel like it was very good for her mental health, and she actually like limits the amount of people or limits the access to her phone to certain people, um, so that not everyone can keep keep in contact with her all the time. So she can have somewhat of a break. Uh, and I think that's a smart thing. Um, cause it can become so overwhelming with it's just nonstop. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, well, that's a lot of, a lot of knowledge and facts and stats and facts for you guys. So we have, we have a few questions we want to go through together and just to kind of, um, talk about this a little more in depth. Uh, But the first question I have for you, Justin, is how do we reverse the trend of phone use? That is such a good question because it feels like we're steamrolling towards more and more and more. And there hasn't really been any concerted effort to try and ramp these efforts back to try and get phone use less. I mean, like we said, you know, teens are spending on average over seven hours a day looking at phones and that's pre-COVID. And COVID has totally changed that because everything's online now or so many more things are online now. Um, I think we really need to take a public health stance when it comes to this kind of stuff. I think talking about it, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is to maybe just try and get more people thinking about it, talking about it. Um, Ultimately, I think we do need to take a public health stance and we need to try and government or get the government to regulate these things because as of now these tech companies are just doing whatever they want and they're using these very powerful psychological techniques to keep us hooked on these phones and the ramifications of this we don't even know yet it it could be pretty bad um so i think we have to start treating it like like the, the issue that it is um we have to figure out a way to limit it. Uh, and so much, so much of the time, you know, doctors say like, well, just eat less, eat healthier, spend less time on the phone. But then people, patients go out into this world where they have to make that decision, where they're constantly bombarded with more food, more screens, and, and people are spending lots of money trying to figure out ways to keep people on their phones too. So they're fighting an uphill battle. So I think if anything is actually going to change, it's got to be at a political and policy level. What do you think, Ed? Yeah, I mean, 
trying to teach, we've talked about this a lot where like in schools, um, having more of like a mental health, whether it's curriculum or just like teachings would be so helpful. Um, so teaching things like sleep hygiene, I think that would be important. You teach kids that, uh, it's important to have a routine. It's important to put the electronics down, you know, about an hour, 30 minutes before it's time to go to bed. Um, going back to like in school, I remember in school, it was, you thought you were cool if you were able to get away with sending someone a text while you're in class. Cause it was back Mm -hmm. then. It was like, no phones. Don't you dare even think about taking out your phone. But like now, and this is just personal experience. Like when I've gone into schools to like go to see like one of my clients or uh, when I was an intern and going to see, you know, some of the kids that I work with on probation and seeing like kids on their phone had one headphone in, like it, it feels like, uh, the phone rules have kind of relaxed a little bit and it's just because everyone has uh, there's always the oh well you know I'm, I'm looking this up on my phone or I'm doing this on my phone and it's like I think that has has relaxed a little bit so trying to do something to limit screen time uh, even parents I know I have I have friends who um, are parents and they, they limit screen time as much as possible for their kids to you know just X amount a week and I think that's really great and I've, I've heard of other parents doing the same thing uh, and also encourage holidays from electronics i mean that's like when's like the when's the time people get like new phones or new gaming systems things like that right like it's always around the holidays so trying to um have like a maybe not electronic free holiday but just a holiday that's not centered around getting a new phone or uh gaming system and then spending the rest of the day on that and I do got to say, I mean, as I, as we're talking about this, like it feels almost weird in a sense for me to like mm-hmm. say we need to do this or we need to do this when like I am not the greatest at limiting my phone time. Like me I am too. not. Yeah. I, I should. I am not the spokesperson. I should not be standing on a soapbox. But <laughs> I think the more that we talk about it, the more that it's something that you know I can start to um, be better about in my own life. I gotta I gotta practice what I preach, right? Yeah. What are, what are some examples of like, or maybe, you know, you don't have to get too, too personal, but some, some examples in your own life, how internet or maybe phone or, or have, have gotten in the way affected it, good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, what really stuck out to me as we were like prepping for today and what I thought about was, um, back in college, like when I was, um, specifically when I was a senior, I, um, uh, I had a very relaxed schedule my senior year, which was nice because I took, you know, whatever credits I needed to take, all of that. And by the time I was a senior, I only needed 12 credits a semester to graduate. And by then, like playing football, our schedule was always we had the nighttime practice. So we'd be done with practice by like 10, uh, shower up, get home, whatever, eat dinner. It's like 1030, 1045, almost 11. And then instead of just going straight to sleep, like I would be on my phone, just kind of like browsing through the, uh, through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and just kind of like same thing. Right. It's like, it's going through the same, like three apps, like not even doing anything very productive. And I just remember I'd always wake up the next day, like extremely tired and like having a hard time getting to class. And that year I took yoga and some of my friends remember this very specifically because it was the first class of uh, the day. It was at like nine o'clock or something and we'd be doing yoga, whatever. And then we'd always get to like the deep relaxation period and I would just fall asleep because I was tired and like (laughs) I didn't sleep well the night before. Uh, So just that, like just not having good sleep hygiene and not practicing, you know, putting my phone away so I can go to sleep like that definitely had an impact on me. Yeah. What about you? 
I would say it's affected me in a lot of ways. I think one of the things that's been one of the things on my mind the most about it is, you know, and oh, my wife loves it when I air out our dirty laundry on the show. Uh, but there used to be times, like especially when we were first dating, where you know we'd be at a restaurant and she would just be on her phone and just like not talking to me. I thought she wasn't into me because I was just like, this is weird. Like, what is going on? Um, and so, and then I remember one time even being at the zoo. Uh, and, you know, we're with her parents and we're all just enjoying it. And she wouldn't stop looking at her phone because some Twitter war was going on. And I remember thinking like, what could, like, and it's something that we've both worked on because I know I have done that in the past too. I, I don't mean to just single out my wife. I love her dearly. She is an excellent person. Um, we've both worked on this a ton um, and trying to just be more in the moment, trying to not just be on our phones because it does take you out of the moment. It does make it hard to remember things that actually happened around you at that time. And, you know, I have seen some studies in the past that show that it's harder to live in the moment. And, and sometimes memory can be impaired too, because you're just so tied to your phone. Um, and so I, I think that's one thing I would encourage people to do is just to try. It kind of prevents you from living your life. Um, yeah. So try and, and put it down so that you can you can just live your life. In Dana's defense, though, like Twitter, <laughs> like you you got like you got to be on top of it, and you got to you know what I mean you got to be there when it happens. Like it's just not the same when you join in later. But no, <laughs> but no, not I, when there I, are pandas around, Ed. There were live true. pandas right there, and she was talking right. about some Twitter war that I bet she doesn't even remember anymore. No, you're. I mean, that's that's. I mean, same things with me. I mean, you, the the one what stuck out too when you said earlier is like you know we're if you're we're out in public and we feel the need to like pull out our phone. Like, how many times do you like? go order food to take out or like take back to work or whatever. It's your lunch break and you order. And then instead of just kind of like sitting down and waiting, you're like, first thing you do is pull out your phone. You get to your spot, you stand in your spot that you're going to wait in and then you pull out your phone. And then that's what I'm going to do until my stuff is ready. Yeah, exactly. And we do it more and more. How much, uh, how much does your screen time app say you spend per week? I'm calling you out. <laughs> So next question. Um, <laughs> uh, it is not good. Um, I don't know if I want to pull out my phone and check, um, but it is it is a good amount. Um, I will say it has definitely dropped off from this time last year, which is weird for some people because, yeah. you know, like COVID has really stuck us at home and stuff. But um, it is definitely less because – when I first, when COVID first happened and like, I wasn't seeing any clients and I wasn't like, it was just me at work waiting to see what was going to happen next. Had a lot of time to be on my phone. Um, but now in, in a job where I'm a lot busier and, um, that, that, I think that's where it, a lot of my use was, was like at work. Sorry to my last employer, but whatever, uh, <laughs> <laughs> was like, I'd be at work and like, I, you know, I'd have all my work done or, you know, I'd, be procrastinating and um i would just be on my phone and then that's kind of how i spend a lot of the day but like now uh in a job where i'm a lot busier and there's a lot more moving parts uh i'm thankfully away from my phone a lot more yeah i what would say about three hours a day a day Is it? <laughs> that's so much time 
That's 21 <laughs> hours a week. That's what, uh, 1,500, a little over 1,500 hours a year. That's crazy. If I would put that time into bettering myself and to like playing more guitar, I would be the friggin' Mozart of, of guitar. Like it's unbelievable how much time we suck. And I find myself doing what a lot of addicts do. A lot of addicts try and justify it's like, oh well, I need this to get by. Oh, I need I when I'm when I'm high, I, I'm more productive. And like I do that with my phone. I'm like, oh well, I'm only on YouTube just because I'm learning how to do stuff. And then I look at like my actual screen time, it's like Facebook is eighty percent of it. And it's yeah. just like it's all but I, I I, I find myself having those, you know, addict type qualities justifying it and defending it. And that scares me. It scares me big time. You know, the worst part about that is that right as you were saying like stuff about your phone, I was going to say like, you know, but you know, I think what, what makes it, <laughs> what really gets it is that like, there's things that just make that like are just so much easier. And I, it's only the first thing that popped into my head is that, you know, gyms opened up here again more. And we, we decided now that like, we, I mean, we've been living in our house now for like six months, but um, the gyms weren't really open before. Now we're, we're joined a gym and like now I can hop on the app and like reserve a time and like, oh, that's pretty convenient. But it's like, what is that? Like a minute of my day. Like that's not doing the rest of the time that I'm on yeah. my phone. You caught me. You caught me before I even said it. <laughs> You're correct. <laughs> there's, there's definitely some justifying of like, oh, well, you know, I'm just – I got to check my work email, got to make sure I'm on top of my stuff. But then it's like, okay, emails, no emails. Okay, cool. What, what's Instagram looking like? What's Twitter looking like? Like, you know, got to check the TikTok, like <laughs> things like that. So you're right. I mean, you, you caught me from justifying before I justify. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that that's a big thing is that there's this collective kind of understanding of like, well, I'm on my phone a lot, so I'm not going to get on someone for being on their phone a lot. It's kind of like, you know, an alcoholic is not going to tell another alcoholic, Hey man, you need to get your, you need to get clean because I think you have that guilt. And I think as a society, we're starting to realize like we're all in this, like we're all mm -hmm. deep in this and we're all getting addicted to our phones um, and maybe that's why we haven't researched it. That's why we haven't put it in the DSM or made a billing code um, because we don't want to face our addiction ourselves mm -hmm. yet. Yeah. Which is um, scary. Yeah. When would you recommend people get help if, if they feel like they're getting too sucked in? I think uh, if you start to, to notice that like people around you are telling you or making comments about it or like, um, I know for me, like Kevy will um, catch me when I'm like on my phone when we're like with friends or something or like, if, you know what I mean? She'll like, she'll like literally like hit my hand or like whatever just to like <laughs> remind me like you got to get off or she'll like tap me and I'm like, oh sh yeah, I got to, I got to get off that. I mean, I think or when- punch you in the face, you know. <laughs> or punch me in the face. <laughs> uh, I think- you know, when other people start to tell you that it's an issue um, or when you're starting to see like, oh, I have, you know, I think this is a pretty popular one, too. It's like, oh, it's it's 945. I have an appointment at 10 or, you know, like, let me I'm going to browse on my phone for a little bit. And then next thing you know, it's like 1002. And you're like, oh, that, like, let me I got <laughs> I got to scramble yeah. and get to get get it together. I remember, too, back in college, I'd be like, OK, it's 8 p.m. Uh, I'm going to wait till 830. Once we hit 830, I'm going to study. And then it get to like 8.34, same thing. I'd been on my phone, not even like, oh, okay, I'll wait till nine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. So mm -hmm. that's kind of like 
once it starts to impair your life like that, I think is a good time to to really like ask yourself like what what is going on? Like what can I do to to help myself? Yeah. yeah. And I think what do you think I I think you're absolutely right. When it starts getting in the way of life, when you start noticing that it's impairing you from spending time with your family, from doing your job, from doing your hobbies, um, that's when you should get help. And and the tough part is, is that, you know, it's not a very well-known thing or recognized thing. And a lot of therapists might not know how to treat it because they didn't learn it in school because it's so new. So I think you mentioned, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, like any type of therapy can help because it is essentially mm-hmm. treating an addiction. Um, and you can use a lot of those same, uh, the same principles and just translate it over into the phone. But it's also yeah. tough too, because like with an addiction, you can stop using, uh, the substances altogether, but with the phone, you have to use it a little bit. I mean, you, I mean, you, you need a phone in today's world to be functional and to be like a real adult or or a child even. So it's it's tough. That's where do you draw the line? Yeah. What do you think in terms of is this our generation smoking? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I think I think our generation has a couple of different smoking situations. Um, I think diet is probably the first one. I mean. 75% of the diseases we give ourselves or we get in this country, we give to ourselves through our lifestyle. It was 75%, uh, you know, cancer, heart disease, we're all giving it to ourselves with our diet. And I think a lot of the, you know, man, I'm sounding like a crazy uh, conspiracy theorist here, but a lot of these major food corporations uh, have very intense and powerful lobbying groups, which change political ideas and prevent people from actually getting healthy. Um, I think plastic waste uh, is another of our generation's smoking. Um, shout out to Scott Coffin, uh, by the way. He is uh, someone I grew up with who actually just testified in front of uh, California's Congress about microplastics. Mm-hmm. He's a PhD. He, uh, he, he is a PhD. He's out of school. I think he's studying it full time. Awesome stuff. Like super cool guy. Super glad he's he found this. But so yeah, I think plastic waste um, is another major thing that we're going to realize like, wow, we were destroying our entire planet for years and years and no one did anything about it. And then I think since it's the newest one, uh, uh, so, you know, diet started probably in the 90s. Plastic started what in the 80s and the internet is mid 2000s. I think for sure, uh, you know, we are giving each other or giving ourselves an addiction, just like smoking, where one day we're going to look back and go, oh, everybody did it. Everyone was using their phones all the time. Everyone had three hours on their phone a day. And we're going to realize like, well, that was dumb. No wonder you guys are so unhealthy. Um, so yeah, I do think it is on that level of smoking. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think I concur. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I think that um, those th- three things seem to be um, very big and have pretty could potentially have or do have big consequences for us. Mm. Any other like major issues you feel like are on that same level? I mean, I think like social media, but I mean, that's, you know, that's like yeah, the, goes back thing. to Internet addiction, right? Like, I mean, how many... Um, how many just like issues with, with like teens nowadays, or even like when we were younger, like the, you know, come from social media, but then that comes from the interwebs. So it's like, they're all kind of related to each other. Yeah. I think, I think that's, um, that's like the big three. I don't know if I can think of another. 
Yeah. I think I maybe know. one I would add to that list is being a Raiders fan. Like, horrible <laughs> for your health. <laughs> Just gluttons for punishment, masochists, you know. <laughs> I got to do this. <laughs> I thought you were going to give me some real stuff. <laughs> uh, one thing we haven't talked about on this show too much is Eddie is a huge Raiders fan and I'm a big Broncos fan and like we're supposed to hate each other but we love each other so the we fact that we make this happen is like even more impressive <laughs> man I just I forgot <laughs> man go Raiders baby Super Bowl champs this year here we go <laughs> <laughs> keep dreaming my friend keep dreaming 21 years here we go <laughs> Uh, well, I I don't have much room to stand on. The Broncos have been just a hot garbage fire for about five years. So um, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. What are what are some of our take home points from this episode, Ed? <laughs> Let's wrap it up. <laughs> uh, I mean, definitely, internet addiction is still a very new diagnosis. It's something that um, the more we research it, the more we look at it, the more we can have like a uniform way to diagnose it, track it and understand it, the more we will know how to better treat it. The more we will know about it, the more we will know the consequences of it. So it's definitely, it's new. Um, it's something that will probably pop up a lot as time goes by. Um, but it's definitely something that's deserving of, of our attention. Yeah. Uh, the internet addiction acts like a lot of other addictions in terms of the actual neurologic pathways that are firing in our brain. And we don't really have any great treatments for it because we haven't really studied it and it's so new. But, you know, therapy in in the traditional sense of the word or cognitive behavioral therapy is probably the best thing you could do if you feel like you're struggling. Yeah. Um, things we can start to try to do, take breaks from your phone, the internet and social media. Um, this is probably good just anecdot anecdotally, but that's that's good enough. A, a placebo effect is still an effect. So doing things like that can definitely help and be, be a way to, to give yourself some, uh, give yourself a break and give yourself something to, to, to help you out. Yeah. And I think the most important take home point for the episode is Selena Gomez. Not only is she super talented, uh, she's also been one of like the biggest proponents of mental health and someone who's made her herself incredibly vulnerable to talk about these things, to reduce stigma, teach young people. Uh, and even she says, try and take breaks from social media because it can be kind of damaging for your mental health. Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting before we wrap up is mm -hmm. how like, celebrities now like obviously like we've gotten older but celebrities like from when we were younger are like now getting older obviously because that's how like time works and like <laughs> yeah you like hear them have like like good stances on things like oh like take care of your mental health or do this right like selena gomez super random but the other day i was on tiktok and paul wall do you remember paul wall the rapper no then <laughs> paul wall are you kidding me okay well mr paul wall is was a rapper and i just i, I listened to 2000 hip-hop all the time and the song grills came on by nelly and he's got a he's got a uh a verse in there and the other day he was on tiktok and he had just gotten his first shot of the covid vaccine <laughs> and i was like paul wall and he, he on his tiktok he's like you know get your vaccine when it's your time you know stay safe out there blah blah blah. like take care of yourselves and in my head i'm like if the ice man paul wall is telling me <laughs> to stay safe and get the vaccine like you're damn right i'm gonna get the vaccine so 
Anyway, it's it's just interesting to see celebrities from when we were younger. Now we're all older, and they like have these stances on things. It's <laughs> so. pretty funny. <laughs> that is that. Uh, before we wrap up, use your Spotify app, use your Apple Podcast app, whatever app you have. Like, share, subscribe. Uh, do whatever you got to do to share this episode. Uh, we appreciate all your support. As always, uh, if you have the op- Apple Podcast app, feel free to leave us a five-star review. Feel free to leave us a comment. You can also message us on any of our social medias, uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all are at MillennialMHC. Uh, we love to hear from you all. We love to have conversations with you all. It's great to have uh, fans just reaching out. I mean, that's super cool. And I think that's just mm-hmm. it, it helps us keep going. So thank you all so much. Thank you for listening. And as always, take care of y'all mentals. One more thing before we go. If you're having any thoughts of harming yourself or harming others, please reach out for help. Call 911, go to the emergency room, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Thanks for listening. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors. About bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors. Presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. For every one construction worker death on the worksite, there are six suicides among construction workers. This statistic, along with a growing body of evidence showing how serious the challenge of poor mental health is for our residents and our workforce in many industries, has compelled the private sector to work toward making a difference. Businesses have a tremendous opportunity to take simple steps to support the mental fitness of their employees. And it's not quite as overwhelming as you might think. On this episode, we dive a little deeper into the construction industry and its challenge as one of the hardest hit sectors when it comes to suicide. Things have been hard, really, really hard. And the world is filled with fear and heartache and distancing from one another and we are wired for connection and community we all have this inherent need to be seen to be heard and to feel validated and without those things we struggle in the last couple years there's been a massive push from the private sector to address mental health in a better way by working with the business community to create a culture of mental fitness that strengthens the resilience of employees. We talk to leaders in one Utah construction business to learn how that can be done and see the profound social impact. This is the State of Good.
The State of Good is a podcast produced by Utah Community Builders, the Salt Lake Chamber's Social Impact Foundation. I'm your host, Nick Dunn. For far too long, any discussions about personal mental health have been viewed as taboo, and that stigma stops people from taking the steps to strengthen their mental fitness. Well, that stigma is on its way out the door for one Utah construction company. My name is Rebecca Kasule, and I am a purchasing agent at Ivory Homes. We talked with Rebecca to hear her story and how her employer, Ivory Homes, has had a huge positive impact on her mental fitness. I have no problem telling people that I go and see a counselor because I think that it's healthy, and um, I think most people should see counselors. <laughs> how an employer should respond to the issue of workforce mental health can feel daunting, but there are best practices that are much more simple than you might realize. I have a lot of support from my direct manager, Jeff. Um, There was one day, I think I'd only been with the company for about a year, and I was overwhelmed. I don't know what it was. It was just a feeling of, I cannot do this right now. And I texted him, and I was just going to text and say, I'm out sick, but for that year that I got to know Jeff, I knew that he had my back and he was supportive and he has this open door policy. So I felt like, okay, I can be vulnerable with him. And I texted him. I told him, I will be worthless to you today. I am overwhelmed. I, I, I can't work out any emotions. I, I really just need to stay home and try to find some peace. Not only did he say, I hope you're feeling better. I'll see you tomorrow. But at about noon, I got a text message from him checking in on me, just making sure I was okay, wondering if there was anything that he could do to help support me. And that is worth gold to an employee. This is the kind of response from a manager that can turn the tide in an industry that struggles with this issue. In fact, construction has the second highest suicide rate out of all industry groups. Rebecca shared with us why she thinks her industry has a greater challenge with mental illness. I would say the biggest challenge we face is the belief that seeking mental or emotional help is considered weak. Another challenge we see within our industry Um, actually within most industries, is that we're too busy to concern ourselves with mental health. So what else about this industry or its workforce might give us some ideas for how to strengthen mental fitness? Construction guys are known to be tough guys. We don't show our feelings. We don't show, oh, of course, you, you know, it's a little blood. Wipe it off. Keep on going. We're tough guys. That is another employee in the construction industry. My name is Dave Broadbent. I'm the COO for Ivory Homes. Dave gives his assessment from the perspective of someone in company leadership, which for other business leaders helps show how starting with buy-in at the top is essential to moving the needle. And so changing some of the um, stigma um, is sometimes a little bit more challenging with that particular group of people, which makes up a large uh, chunk of our employee base. So what you're hearing from both the leadership and the employee level is that stigma is one of the major barriers to addressing mental health in the workforce. 
This is certainly true for other industries, but is especially acute for construction. The question naturally becomes, what are some tangible ways that a business, whether in construction or any industry for that matter, can actually help strengthen mental fitness in their workforce? The biggest thing is we just start talking about it. That is our third and final guest on today's episode. My name is Annie Wilson, and I'm general counsel for Ivory Homes. Annie has been a public voice on behalf of Ivory Homes on the issue of mental health and has partnered with Utah Community Builders on this issue for well over a year. At the beginning of the year, every year Ivory Homes sets goals as a company, and one of the goals that we set this year um, had to do with mental and physical health and increasing that in our employees and really caring, showing that we care about that. And so right out of the shoot at the beginning of the year, we made it clear that mental health was a priority. It was a goal and started talking about it from there. We've implemented some programs that I'll let Dave speak to. But I think that, that the first step is just talking about it, saying this is an issue. We're going to make it okay to talk about. And not only that, we're going to set it as a company goal to increase that mental health. Starting off with simple and real conversations with employees opens the door to building an environment of trust. We did a really good job of checking in on people just to say, hey, how are you doing? No, no, I didn't ask about how that job's going today. Like, how are you, Ron? How are you doing? Amy, how are you? And to have some real sincere check-ins to see how people were coping, whether that be challenges with all of a sudden homeschooling kids, whether that was childcare challenges, there was fear, there was so many things. And so all of a sudden there was this change that I could see where we were starting to be a little bit more vocal than we had in the past and being willing to ask how people were doing. The events of the past couple years created a unique opening for these kinds of conversations to happen in the workplace. COVID, as difficult as it was, it was really a unique opportunity to have those very candid conversations that wouldn't, I don't think, have come up. We made it a point to have weekly or monthly calls with the entire employee force. And I think that built trust, a lot of trust between the people and management. The momentum to create this environment of trust and foster conversation that can be at times vulnerable is most effective when it starts at the very top. I think it absolutely starts with the leadership from the top of our CEO, Clark Ivory, having great compassion for people and care. And we know at the end of the day that it's our people who ultimately make us a market leader. It's the people who, um, who make things happen. A notable aspect of Ivory Homes' approach to addressing workforce mental fitness is that they paired compassion and open conversation with real action that impacted employees. And I think a lot of times when we talk about mental health, we it's almost a, this way of, I don't want to say it's insincere, but you know, someone's really stressed out, maybe they're stressed about money and other financial things, and you say, well, here are 10 tips for mindfulness. And, you know, here, go practice these 10 tips and you'll be less stressed and you'll have better mental health. And sometimes I feel like that doesn't always come off well to the employee base. But when when Clark decided to give every single 
employee a bonus just for well-being, just saying we know everyone's had a hard year. Here's a substantial uh, bonus to help you, to help your family, whatever you need. And the responses that we got back from that were people really opened up. People said, you know, this is amazing and it's affecting my life in this way. This is what I can do that I couldn't do before. And even though that's, I know, not directly related to mental health, I think it, again, increased that trust and that communication to where all of a sudden we're having conversations that we have never had before as a company. And I'd add to that, I think it was about caring about the whole person because in addition to those funds that were given, also those who are participants on our health insurance plan, we made extra HSA contributions. So we were saying, hey, regardless of what that need is, whether it be some sort of need that requires dollars um, to support your family, or if it's something uh, to take care of your physical being, that there are additional dollars. Don't wait, go get help, whatever that might be, whether that's a broken arm or a broken heart. A third way to make a difference is evaluating what is currently available to employees things like an employee assistance program, and being willing to find different ways to more effectively provide what employees need. In this case, Ivory Homes turned to another local Utah business that offers mental health resources and training, Blue Novus. People were more concerned at that point in time, you know, beginning of 2021 with mental health than they were physical health. And so we decided that was the first thing we were going to tackle was mental health. And as we listened to the Blue Novus presentation, it seemed like that would better suit our employees' needs than just the traditional EAP plan. So we decided to transition away from the employee assistance plan. Yeah, I, have, I use those, that acronym, right? <laughs> and towards Blue Novus. And, and I think we have had better usage. I wouldn't say it's out of the park. I mean, I would hope more people would use it than do, but we still do have increased usage than we had under the strictly employee assistance plan we do it's closer to 30 to 40 percent engagement Mm -hmm. versus the five to seven percent that we had under a traditional eap plan and part of it's just maybe i'll call it new age making it more accessible you can text someone you can pick up the phone and call someone and not set up an appointment for a month down the road it's like i need someone right now i need to talk to someone and most of the time that is sufficient. Um, There are other issues that require more time and attention, but that's what really drew us in. In addition to that, as a part of the Blue Novus program, they did excellent training with our managers. That was extremely eye-opening to me, even though I had been a part of this discovery process to bring this along. There's a lot that I know I can do better as a manager, but that education has been fantastic and has helped me be a a better listener. One quick thing worth emphasizing, going back to workplace culture, is that employers can be thoughtful about what aspects of the job are creating stress points. Annie explains how that principle applies in the construction industry. One of the things Dave already mentioned, which is care. If you sincerely care about your employees and you're checking in, in with them, I think that in and of itself goes a long way. Then at least you know what's going on. And you have that culture of where people will share with you. So I think that's the biggest thing. And then the second thing I think that helps 
as you know bigger on the macro level is to when you are checking with those employees find out structurally is there something wrong with your team or your department that's creating unnecessary stress because we're all going to have stressful days the construction industry as a whole is stressed out right now but are there things that are unnecessarily stressful are there parts of your job that don't need to be stressing you out so if you're a a field construction guy and you're getting 100 emails a day, that's not helpful. That's not your job to be answering 100 emails. You're out in the field inspecting the work that's being done. So what do we need to change structurally about the way your department's operating so that you can better do your job and not have to deal with those unnecessary stressors? I think if a management team is willing to be flexible and not just stuck in their ways and think, well, you know, we we expect everyone to respond to emails, but think, okay, is this the best use of your time? And how can we optimize the performance of each person? I think that helps not only the team function better, but it helps the individuals not get burned out. Before we go, you might be asking yourself, what's next? What's my role and responsibility in making a difference for the mental health of my fellow Utahns? And how do we actually get there? For business leaders, what we just heard shows us the importance of three things. Number one, leaders who model the behavior and the messages that foster a culture of mental fitness. Number two, equipping managers with training and the right tools to know how to strengthen relationships of trust and authenticity with those they manage. And number three, providing the right resources to employees. These principles apply no matter what role we play. We can each be a leader who models the behavior and speaks openly to reduce stigma. We can educate ourselves on the tools available, and we can promote those resources to those in our circle. These principles can apply to any industry and even any sphere of our lives. But let's close with a word from our friends in the construction industry about the impact this approach has had. I think we connect a lot more than maybe we did in the past. But I think because of the focus on each individual and the importance of their happiness has made a big difference. And I think the overall sentiment is extremely positive right now as a result. A meeting I had with our development team several weeks ago where the president of the develop team, development team just did kind of a check-in with everybody, how, how are people doing, and one of the guys shared something difficult that he was going through and really broke down and in tears in this meeting, and there's me and 12 to 15 guys that I don't think two years ago we would have had that meeting and that space where there was you could feel that there was zero judgment in that room and that this person was being vulnerable because he knew he could be vulnerable in that space. And I don't think vulnerability looks the same to every person and not everyone's gonna break down in a meeting and cry. But the fact that it was completely accepted and nobody batted an eye, I was just like, wow, we've, we've made some progress. So cool. We've made some progress here. If you want to take the next step, you can access a brand new resource to make this easy. It's called Total Safety, a guide to resilience and mental fitness in the construction industry. Total Safety is an actionable guide that shows how to build a culture of mental fitness in the construction industry. 
We've also produced guides for hospitality and the legal profession, and a suite of other tools for businesses. Just visit slchamber.com slash Utah Community Builders and click on Workforce Resilience. On the surface, it seems a lot harder than it really is. And not to reduce this down to numbers, but honestly, our bottom line, I don't think would be what it is without the focus we've had on mental health. And it's not that expensive. It's a pretty nominal investment. I promise it'll make a difference within your organization. Suicide, depression, anxiety, and anything that stops us from feeling at our mental and emotional best have plagued Utah for far too long. We have a unique opportunity today to end the stigma around mental health and take the steps in our own lives, in our businesses, and throughout our state to make our workforce and our families the most resilient and mentally fit in the nation. The momentum and the resources are there and growing. Visit slchamber.com slash Utah Community Builders. Utah Community Builders is supported by the Clark and Christine Ivory Foundation. Thank you for listening to this episode of The State of Good. a man's journey through divorce where we talk about real divorce challenges and share practical tools to help you move not only through divorce but beyond i'm your host steve schlupner owner of utree and i want to thank you once again for taking some time to listen in today we're going to talk about the effects of divorce on a business owner or on a business partnership and that's a partnership that's not with the spouse And in particular, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how a contentious situation can lead to a business being used as a pawn in a legal strategy. Now, this is the bonus episode. It's the second part of a three-part series that focuses on the effects of divorce on the business owner. So if you haven't listened to part one, which is episode 40, where I go in to focus on Uh, how divorce impacts key employees and why it's in your best interest as a business owner to be very conscious of when your key employees uh, are going through the divorce and the, the high risk rate that they face of getting divorce. After the second part's recorded, we're going to release a third part, which focuses on what happens when a married couple owns a business together and then they decide to divorce. So let's dive into our topic today. Let's dive in and look at how divorce is affecting a business owner that's a sole proprietor or is part of a partnership that's not involving the spouse. And in particular, how that can potentially lead to the business being used as a pawn in a legal strategy. So let's first distinguish what makes a business such a unique asset in a divorce. 
when there is a successful business, the family has grown accustomed to the business doing two things. First, it's the source of income. And even in many instances, especially when the business is successful, it's a source of luxury. There's cars run through the business, trips. Some, some cases, it it's almost seems like there's an open checkbook for many parts of the lifestyle coming through the business. Now, keep in mind, this is for very successful businesses. If you're, if you're running a failing business and you're getting a divorce, um, there's not much there. So I, I wouldn't expect that your business is ever going to be used as a pawn in a legal strategy. Maybe it's possible. But when, it, when there's a well-established, successful business, that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second unique thing is the business is the source of security. So there's been this underlying assumption that at some point the equity in that business is going to turn to cash and that cash, that payout, that final sale is what's going to be in place to secure all your future needs. It's a different mindset than a divorce that doesn't involve a business. So if there's a couple that is just working, right? They work for employers and their assets are their house and their joint accounts and their retirement accounts. Well, those things tend to be separated. Whereas a business, the income and the equity source are in the same place. So it makes it makes it a little bit more complex. So businesses are complex assets. And with that, it opens a door to an imbalance in the legal strategy when there is a high degree of contentiousness or mistrust with the spouse who is not an owner of the business. So you have to remember, it's very likely that uh, at that, and what I, what I see, now I'll just generally speak here. I've seen businesses that have worked over time. The owners have worked over time. They've grown a very successful business. And as that business has grown, the involvement necessary for the owners to keep up that success grows and grows and grows. Money starts to flow into the household. They're living a a well um, lifestyle. There's a certain amount of abundance flowing. And with that, oftentimes the spouse will take a role that's more focused on uh, running, running a household. And that spouse oftentimes grows accustomed, well, both of them do, but the spouse is what we're fo- focusing on because the spouse is the one that can be triggering the pawn in the legal strategy. The spouse grows accustomed to the lifestyle. And they experience the fruits of the business, but they don't necessarily understand all the inner workings and the fine nature of what the business needs in order to produce a profit. They're just used to receiving the fruits. Now, one of the things, if you've been a podcast listener, you'll hear me speak very frequently on which is the 
concept of the ending of unequals. And what the ending of unequals means is that oftentimes in a relationship, one party will disengage from the other party during the relationship. So they begin to accept uh, the loss of financials, wealth, and income. They begin to accept the loss of the spouse, and they begin begin to grieve the relationship and even start to come to grips on what how they'll handle potential changes within the family. Where the person who is told that, that a divorce is wanted uh, may not have been happy in the relationship, but that dynamic triggers an unequal footing, and this person has to handle that, handle being told that the marriage is over, and simultaneously grow accustomed to all the transition changes that the other person has already kind of uh, put their arms around. So it's the ending of unequals. Uh, this is one of the key things I think is always important to catch up front, right, is to start to hit that ending of unequals head on, but most people don't do that. They, they move right into separation and they start the process and that unequal dynamic exists and it's a leak in the success pattern of the divorce and no one ever goes back and plugs it. So with a divorce... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the approach of, a, of the spouse here. The spouse could be the one who has sat back and looked at, let's just say, their husband running the business and said, you know, I'm not happy. He's, all, he's always involved in the business. Um, you know, whatever reason, she decides to leave. Now, in that decision she could be basing a lot of her assumptions on the lifestyle that she's grown accustomed to. Maybe true, maybe not. The other side, and then, you know, the the man in this case is at the ending of unequals. He becomes the one that hasn't grieved. He's the one that has wounds opened up. He's the one that may take more of a defensive posture. And that unequal dynamic can build contentiousness. It can even lead to mistrust, especially if the business owner starts to appear to hide things or, um, you know, be possessive in some way. It will lead to mistrust to the other spouse. Then there's a situation where the business owner is the one who's asking for the divorce and the spouse is kind of surprised. And in this case, the spouse has a lot of fear. You know, they, they don't want to lose the family, lose the lifestyle. They're not sure how the business runs. They know the business provides and therefore I want it to keep providing. It's not my fault that he wants to leave that type of thing. So this ending of an equals flows and there can be assumptions based on either side that the business can cover the needs. The issue though is in two areas. See if you're if you're a couple in this instance and you can sit down as adults and bridge that ending of an equals right away or even 
become to a point where you're almost amicable, then then the business flows well into through the legal process. However, if that ending of an equals gap is pretty big, then it's a feeding ground for mistrust. And the mistrust occurs when the ex-spouse feels that things are being hidden or undervalued, right? That there might be some sort of possessiveness, even some sort of retaliation in the form of you're not getting stuff out of the business. If that mistrust exists, that's toxic. There also can be contentiousness, whereas let's let's just say there's other elements. Maybe the, the owner had an affair, emotional affair or an actual affair, or maybe uh, there's some resentment or um, you know fear. Anything that's driving contentiousness, that contentiousness will blossom and it will overflow and it's going to trump out any attempts at using a calmer head to try to prevail in the situation. So this mistrust and this contentiousness then opens the door for legal strategies to play a big role. Now, we're talking about a unique asset, right? There's a business here. And especially if it's successful, it's easy to assume that, well, we can try some different things because the business will be able to afford it, afford it. Look at its numbers. Look at what you were making. I've always argued that when, you know, they say that there's a consistent price, an average price per divorce per state, let's say it's $15,000. I, I believe that the price of divorce is uh, predicated mostly off of how much income the family makes and what is the net overall net worth right? Jeff Bezos didn't go through a $15,000 divorce. I guess in the news today, Johnny Depp isn't going through a $15,000 divorce in that debacle. So the legal strategies that I've seen come into play is one is, is to exhaust the business owner, gobble up time, gobble up energy, and they'll do it by things like asking for all sorts of documentation on all angles of the business. We want to see your operations manuals. We want to see uh, your sales contracts. We want to see your emails. We want to see everything. As if that opposing attorney is going to build up a Perry Mason war chest of proof and have time to sit down and disseminate any of this to a judge who, quite frankly, has a quite busy docket and isn't even going to be inclined to spend the time to go through all those things. But the attorneys will, will gather this, and I think part of, it, part of it's twofold. One of it's, one of it's maybe is grandstanding to say, hey, look at my worth. This is what I do for you as my client. And the other part is to exhaust the business owner time and energy, knowing that that person's already stretched in running the business and this is an additional monumental task on top of them with 
the divorce, family changes, and the person's only human, so we'll try to exhaust their time and energy. The second one is to exhaust capital. Now, I've always said that there's three ways that a, a business will be valued, right? There's the value that you want to present to the IRS. When you're selling a business, you want it to be low, so you don't have to pay your tax on it. And then there's the value that you want to present when you're selling your business to a buyer. You want it to be high. There's also the value that an opposing attorney is going to assume that your business is worth and they want it to be as high as possible. They want it sometimes to be um, unrealistically high. They'll argue for all sorts of things to make it unrealistically high. So there can be exhaust and drains on the business, not only when the owner gets pulled away from doing their important task and being the leader of that business, and you spend your time on a divorce and your energy on divorce, there's only so much effectiveness that can roll out into your business. But there's also this piece of um, maybe asking for valuations. I have a, a, a business owner that I've been working with that went through a, um, a buyout of his partner, just had a valuation but the court approved another valuation as if the numbers were really going to change. These are expensive things on the capital and they take even more time because then the business has to work with the valuation company to get all the pieces together so they can value it. And oftentimes that starts from scratch, especially if the valuation company is a completely different company that then was used before. They're not necessarily going to rely on everything that the other company did. There can be forensic accountants that come in. Again, more time, more cost, more energy. So there's all sorts of things that, be, that come into play, but the main thing is, is that you as a business owner are going to be stepped up in your overall difficulty of managing a divorce because you're dealing with such a complex asset and you're the one that's sort of on the hot seat. You're the one that has to provide all this to the opposing counsel. So what do you do? I think the first thing that you do is you take every attempt possible to close that ending of an equals it's important to rebuild trust and it's important not to get trapped in contentiousness. Now I understand that the spouse may continue those patterns and you have no control, but your job is to always show up and be trusting, uh, to deliver what's expected timely to do everything you can you can do to bring your best self to this challenging situation in a hope that things start to diffuse. They may not, but the alternative is even worse in my mind. The next piece is to root down in your physiology. Now I've talked 
extensively in this podcast series about the importance of divorce across the 5F domain. The 5F is finances and family, where, which is where most of the attention occurs, faith, fitness, or your overall well-being, and your fervor or your earnestness and your ability to understand your emotions. So much attention gets put on the family and finances that it gets garnished from the fitness and the fervor. But the bedrock on what you need to do to operate is your physiology. There needs to be a self-care routine for you so that you can build upon the mental strength that you have. You can produce the physical energy to improve your mental state so you can show up to the complex nature of your divorce with a better head. So that's a very important thing to do. The third piece, and it not, I mean, really, that's where coaching comes in. The third piece is you need to delineate what's necessary and realistic versus what is legal grandstanding. So you have to have a filter that balances out these attempts to come through that seem to be attacks, and they can quickly draw your attention and your energy away from what's important now. They can quickly pull you away. You need to have a filter in place to say, oh, this is just the legal grandstanding occurring here. I'm going to delineate from that, focus on what's important in my business. I'll get to some of that when I can get to it. Fourth, I would suggest surrounding yourself with a team of experts rather than just relying on an attorney. Your attorney has experience in legal matters, but the complex nature of your business involves you to get help on different fronts and from different perspectives, right? The legal side of divorce, when you're asking a lot of questions from an attorney on what to do and how things are going to turn out, it's often communicated in gray lines. Well, it could be this way, but it also could be that way. So you need to find other ways to get support for yourself, whether it's coaching. Um, I even like the idea of finding a mentor, a business mentor who can help you. Another key thing, and this, this is especially true if you're in a partnership, is in, because if you're in a partnership, you're in a business marriage right? A marriage in a business requires communication and teamwork. Well, your business partnership needs to grow stronger together as a result of this challenge. So I would look at it as our business is facing an, a unique challenge, something that it hasn't been equipped to do. And that challenge is going to lean on our business and our ability to be effective partners and effective leaders. And when it does that, it's going to open up fissures. It's going to, cracks are going to appear in our weak spots in our business. This is actually a good thing. Let's sit back, look at some of these cracks as they occur, and let's figure out how to lead this business as a result of the challenge possibly in a, from a new perspective or a new direction, or let's look at how some of these cracks can be repaired through different types of continuous improvement strategies. You can see the business and you can see the things that open up as a result of this challenge. You can see areas where the owner 
has become single person dependent. The business is single person dependent on the owner and that there might be opportunities for delegation. You can see some of these things occur. So the divorce can actually be a blessing in some ways to your business. If you take that mindset, you might experience a cost today to get through the divorce, but you might uncover a new way of operating that makes you so much money in the future and you wouldn't have seen it unless the divorce was here. This is true for a sole proprietor as well. The same holds true. So these are just a few of the things that you can do while divorce is live in your business. Uh, There are some things you can do as a precursor to divorce as a contingency plan. But just remember, there is a trap, and the trap is a competing competition for your attention, your energy, and your time. If you fall into it, it can accelerate your angst and worry, and this steals your ability to lead and become a more effective leader as a result. There's a piece here that you have an opportunity to grow from. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, I've worked with businesses on transition strategies. I've worked with businesses on consulting. I've, I've consulted individual owners who are in very toxic, contentious, mistrusting divorces, and even worked with couples that own a business together, which is what I'm going to go into next week, where there's a high degree of contentiousness, but it's in their best interest to root down and close that gap of the ending of unequals and get their head square so they can, they can develop their exit strategy in a way that complements all the work that they've put into the business. So if you have a need, if you have a, a question or, or would like to talk about your situation, just reach out to me at www.utreecoaching.com. Schedule a free consultation on my webpage, and I'll be glad to sit down and hear a little bit about your situation and just see if, if there's a, a way for me to contribute value there. Just remember, not all divorce situations go in, go through the legal process smoothly. The, the, the process, which I call the traditional path through divorce, isn't necessarily customizable. Uh, the more contentiousness and the more complexity there is, the more things can fall off the rails. And if you run across an attorney that doesn't have an overall, uh, their overall intentions or integrity aligned with you fully, then you can possibly become an ideal client for the wrong type of person. I hope you found this content helpful. I appreciate you listening. And just remember, you're not alone. There's many guys, many people going through similar situations as you with a lot of different perspective and some pre-work. Maybe you can have an outcome that's better than you thought you could.